we have been looking forward to this day for a long time. At least I have been, and I know lots of people have. And we, I said we, the great we. There might be somebody out there who hasn't, but you know, get on board, get on board. And uh, no, we, uh, we uh, I think it was very early this year, I believe, in 2019. You're a very busy man, Ron. And uh, it took like, I think, eight, nine, or 10 months to get you here. But uh, he's here, and I, I didn't realize it, but when I w last was talking to Ron, he lived in Mississauga, and uh, now he lives in B.C. So he is staying at the luxurious Days Inn over there next door, and uh, is it okay, by the way? I, okay. <laughs> so, uh, lovely. So, anyway, so we, uh, we're really thrilled to have Ron, and uh, just... Really glad you're here. So why don't we give him a welcome and come on up. Great. Thank you very much, Pastor. It is indeed a joy to be with you. Uh, I trust each of you, as you came in, picked up one of these booklets. Uh, if not, I believe the ushers still have some. If you want to give them a wave, they will f uh, give one to you. It has been a busy season for us. We uh, part of, uh, I served in different roles with the International Office of the Pentecostal Assemblies. I came uh, six years ago to help out with the pension fund of the Pentecostal Assemblies, uh, uh, give direction to that. Uh, that will be changing in the next few months where I will be stepping down from that. Another gentleman has already begun to take over that, and so we'll be handing over responsibilities. Uh, but And that'll just free me up to do more of what uh, is really my passion, which is stewardship, the whole area of stewardship. And in, in also this year, we've had the opportunity to fill in for David Hazard as General Secretary during his time of illness. Uh, friends, that is a miracle story. I don't know if you've heard, but our General Secretary Treasurer of the Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada, in April this spring, uh, I had the privilege of gathering around with some of the elder statesmen of our fellowship, and they said, it's time. Call the elders together and to pray. Our dear brother Hazard had been diagnosed with stage four lung cancer, and it, 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 was, it was serious. Uh, we we thought we were going to lose him. But we gathered around and we prayed, we anointed with oil, we had a time of prayer and singing and intercession. And from that day to today, his last visit to the doctor, the doctor said, if I didn't know what you'd gone through over the last few months, I wouldn't know you had cancer. So pastor, when you pray for God's healing power, it's real. It's real. Call upon the Lord. So we've been filling in a little bit for him over the last few months, and so that has kind of filled our schedule and bumped some of the other things around. So appreciate your patience. Glad to be with you today. This, if, if you thought you were coming to just hear a message about dollars and cents and money, you'll get that. But you will also probably get one of the greatest messages you'll ever hear. I am trusting that you will hear something today that will change your life forever. 
Our presentation is entitled Radical Stewardship. When we talk about stewardship, we're talking about the understanding that everything we have comes from God. Everything we have belongs to God. And everything we have is to be used for God and his purpose and his kingdom. That's stewardship. And when we say everything, we mean everything. Now, we may talk mostly today about our finances, but stewardship is much bigger than that. And when we talk about radical, it's not radical in the sense that we're going to ask you to do something wild and crazy with your money. But it's radical in the sense of the word that means to be rooted. And so when we're talking about radical stewardship, we're talking about stewardship that's deeply rooted in the scriptures. You see, there's a lot of voices out there that will tell you what to do with your money, especially at election time. But there's, there's your banker that will tell you what to do. There's the car dealership that tells you what to do with your money. There's a grocery store that tells you what to do with your money. There's your accountant. There's your financial advisor. There's your spouse. There's your children. There's everybody telling you what to do with your money. But in the midst of all those voices, you need to know that the Scripture has something to say. In fact, it has a lot to say. And so I trust you brought your Bibles with you or you'll be able to take notes and mark down some of the scripture references that we'll be giving you because there's a lot that, that God wants you to know about your personal finances. So let's begin. Matthew chapter 6, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and to steal but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven for where your treasure is there your heart will be also it's one of my favorite verses when jesus stated this he immediately made this whole financial thing a spiritual matter it's about your heart for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And it can go just as easily the other way. Is where If you want something to be a treasure, put your heart into it. Businessman came to the pastor one day and said, Pastor, I, I know missions is important. I, I, I hear you talk about it a lot. I, I know we need to send missionaries. I know we need to support them on the field. I know we need to uh, just lift missions up as, as the cause of the church. But he says, to be honest with you, Pastor, I just don't have a heart for missions. And Pastor, in his great wisdom, said, tell you what. Next Sunday's Mission Sunday, you come ready to put a check for $10,000 in the missions offering. You'll have a heart for missions. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It became a matter of the heart, a spiritual matter. And Jesus went on to say, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money, or mammon is, as it is in some uh, versions of the scripture. You cannot serve both God and money. And what he's saying you cannot he, he means it's impossible. You can't do it. 
it's not like, well, you know, have a bit of this and a bit of that, and we'll just kind of try and blend all of this together and make sure, you know, everybody's cozy and comfortable and it all works. He said, no, you can't do it. Every decision you make, particularly any financial decision you make, is either an effort to serve God or to serve mammon, money. And when you think of it in terms of those references, it takes on even greater spiritual significance. It's like Jesus knew that money had that potential to be the other God in our life. He sets them up one in opposition to the other. All of those things that are due God, our worship, our attention, our time, our effort, our adoration, all of that, sometimes gets shifted over towards money. And we spend all of our days trying to earn money. We spend all of our lifetime trying to save money. Then we spend all of our retirement trying to spend that money that we've been saving up all those years. It takes on almost a deification where it becomes another God in our lives. You cannot serve God and money. The Apostle Paul picks up the topic in 1 Timothy 6. He says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous, to be willing to share. And in this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. There's a couple of interesting things in this passage. First of all, we'll take this verse, command those who are rich, and we'll pass it on to the next person. Because I'm not rich. R rich is somebody who has more than I do. That's who rich is. But did you know that last year, if you had income over 22000 that's less than 2000 a month, you were in the top 10% of the world's wealthy. And, and even if you only had about half of that, about 10500 you're still in the top 20% of the world's wealthy. So command those who are rich. The other thing we'll tend to do with this verse is say, Okay, here's another one of those scripture verses where God just wants to take everything away from us and we're just going to have a boring life. We're not going to be able to enjoy anything and it's just going to be miserable. But take a look at the verse. At the end it says, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. And at the end of this verse it says that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. I'm here to tell you that when you implement basic biblical principles concerning your personal finances, you will enjoy the abundant life. You will live a life of freedom and you will live a life of joy. In fact, it could get really exciting for you when you find out what it is to live according to the scripture in terms of your finances. And I hope we'll be able to help you with that. So we want to take a look at some biblical principles for personal finances. There's a half a dozen. There's find the spot marked X, which simply means where are we at now? Then where are we going? We're going to set some goals. Then how are we going to get there? We'll create a financial plan. How do we know we're on plan track? We'll manage our spending and then we'll finish off with re planning for retirement and doing some final touches. So let's begin. Find the spot marked X. Do you know it's very difficult to follow directions if you don't know where you are? 
you go into a new mall, never been there before. You have an idea of a store that you want to visit, but you have no idea where it is. The first thing you're going to do is you're going to look for a directory. On that directory, you're going to find that store that you want to go to. But even then, that doesn't really help you because you don't know where you are. So you've got to go back to that directory. And what are you going to look for? You're going to look for that spot that has the X that says, you are here. And once you know where you are, you can know where you want to go. So we need to do the same thing with our finances. And if we're going to do that, we're going to have to be honest. I mean, if you're lost, admit it. Do you know that half of Ontarians live paycheck to paycheck? That means if they missed one pay, they'd be in danger of not being able to pay their rent, their mortgage, not make their car payment, maybe not even be able to put food on the table, living paycheck to paycheck. If you're lost, admit it. Secondly, be open. This is especially true for couples. If you're working together on your finances, you want to be able to communicate openly with one another. No hidden bank accounts, no hidden credit cards. Everything out in the open so it can be talked about and discussed. And be thoughtful. How, how did you get where you are in your finances? E even if you're in good financial shape, how did you get there? Probably the blessing of the Lord. Yes, it was hard work on yourself, but we all know that even the ability to work comes from the Lord, according to Deuteronomy chapter 8. So we need to stop and pause and give thanks and be grateful. Saying thanks is just recognizing that it didn't all come from us. But what if we are in financial trouble? How did we get there? Well, for some people, they just run into life. Difficult circumstances, illnesses, bad partnerships, things that get us into financial difficulty. But for the majority of people, it's just spending more than you earn. It's as simple as that. It's having an appetite that's bigger than we're able to be able to meet. It's, it's that desire to keep up with the Joneses, as they say. Well, at some point, you just have to step out onto the front step and say, Jones, I quit, you win. It's a lot to do with our attitude, our emotions. M money's a, that's the other thing. Money's a very emotional topic. You want to start an argument? Start talking about money. It, especially among couples. They say the greatest source of divorce is, is arguments about money. In fact, I'm sure this couple had been talking about money. So anger gets in the way. The other, uh, another emotion is fear. It's amazing the number of financial decisions that are made out of fear. And this fear shows itself in a couple of ways. We don't want to spend. We keep things to ourselves, even to the point of hoarding. Do you know you can make a TV show out of that? But they, they can, people just hang on to things out of fear. I'm afraid I won't have enough for tomorrow. I won't have enough for myself. I'm afraid I won't have enough for my children. So we hold on. Can't give. Can't be generous because I'm afraid. But fear has another way of expressing itself in our lives. We're afraid that we're not going to look good. We're not going to look 
wealthy. We're not going to look successful. So we end up spending more than we have, spending lavishly, because we're afraid. What are the neighbors going to think if I don't have a new car? What are the neighbors don't think are going to think if, if my house doesn't have this, that, or the other thing, a pool in the backyard and all the rest of that? What are they going to think? They're going to think I'm terrible parents if I don't have my kids enrolled in this and that and the other thing. So we spend. In fact, we spend money that we don't have to impress people that we don't like. We're afraid. And that fear motivates us in so many of the things we do. But there is another emotion, and it's called hope. And hopefully through our discussions today, we can give you hope that no matter where you are in your finances, there's a way out. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about itself. For nothing is impossible with God, and what is impossible with men is possible with God. Let me give you a fundamental law of economics. If you want to find that spark marked X, if you want to know where you're at now, there's a simple financial exercise. It's called the OO law of finance. The first O relates to everything you own. The second low relates to everything you owe. And when you subtract one O from the other O, you get your net worth, and that's when you say, uh-oh. <laughs> Let me give you an example. Here's an individual. This is what they own. That's the first O. We got a house worth 450,000, vehicles worth 22, maybe some uh, uh, vacation property worth 48,000. They've been able to put a little bit away into some mutual funds, some retirement funds, and a bit of cash in the bank. Everything they own is $550,000. Here's what they owe. There's still a mortgage on the house. They still owe something on the cars, still on, on that vacation property. They own something. We said we'd be open. There's that loan to the mother-in-law. So everything they owe is 235000 When you subtract that two thirty-five from the five fifty, their net worth is three fifteen. It's a simple exercise you can do with your own finances. When you go home and want to do some homework, you can just try that if you haven't done it already. In fact, if you have an opportunity to meet with me later on, either today or in the next couple of days, we'll probably go through this exercise as part of our sit-down with you, and we'll just figure out, finding the spot marked X, principle number one. Principle number two is set some goals. And basically, this is just getting from here to there. There's some long-term goals, some short-term goals, and pages seven to eight of your booklet, it mentions some of them. Uh, but the thing you want to do here is make sure they are smart goals, specific, attainable, measurable, attainable, realistic, and timely. Let me give you an example. I could have the goal, I want to get out of debt. That's a good goal. But it's kind of vague. So uh, to make it a smart goal, I'll say, I want to reduce my indebtedness by $100 a month over the next year. All of a sudden, now I'm getting specific. It's measurable. It's attainable. It's realistic. And it's got a time frame on it. So set those goals that you can actually meet. Principle number three, create a financial plan. The first thing we do here is make a commitment to God. It's interesting We've maybe taken that verse which says you cannot serve God in money, and out of that we've said, okay, God's over here, money's over here, God's not interested in my money. Oh, yes, he is. Because he says, for where your treasure is, there your heart is also. 
Now, it's funny. People will often come to church, and they say, oh, yeah, you go to church, and all they want is your money. Funny thing is, God doesn't want just your money. He wants everything. All of you. But commit to God. Commit to the Lord. Whatever you do and your plans will succeed. Secondly, get help from informed people or reliable sources. Obviously, we're talking about bankers and accountants, financial advisors, things like that. But don't forget also mentors. People who have lived out good biblical principles in their own lives. People who have raised a family. If you're a young person just starting out, a young couple, and you've got a new family, talk to somebody who's done that, who's been there. How did you make ends meet? How did you end up with enough money and not too much month? How did you raise your children and help them meet all of the different activities and needs that they wanted to be involved in? Get a good financial mentor, somebody who's living these things out in their own lives. And then thirdly, here's where we get technical. Invoke the old McDonald law of economics, E-I-E-I-O. Let me tell you what I mean here. First, E-I is expected income. Here's an example of an individual whose wages of just over 4000 a month. Got some interest income on his investments, some rental income. They've turned a hobby into some uh, resources and self-employment. So they have total income of about $5,398. That's the first EI, expected income. The next EI is expenses incurred. So they take 540 and we give that in ties. Interesting that that's 10% of their income. We'll talk more about that in a moment. They're helping maybe in or, uh, from child overseas and giving some missions, $175. Household expenses, including food and clothing, $950. Mortgage rent, utilities, $2250. Car payment, and a little bit in savings. But then they've got that category at the bottom called other. One of the most difficult things in getting a handle on your finances is actually knowing where it's going. You don't want a large amount in other. You want to know where everything is going. In fact, in our booklet on page 9, they issue what's called a 14-day challenge. And if you've never done this before, it's a, it's a very revealing exercise. For 14 days, just take and write down everything you spend. Now, just let's make it easy. So just take the receipts what you spend, stick them in your pocket or your purse, and at the end of the day, pull them out, put them on a spreadsheet. Or if you've got some software that you can help you with your personal finances, that's even better. But just write them down. And, and we, we're not going to be meticulous here. If it's $14.98, just put $15 down. We're, we're just trying to get an idea of where things get spent. Accuracy will leave to the accountants. You will be amazed. And those of you who have done this, you, you'll, be, you'll be able to confirm this. The very act of tracking your spending will cause you to spend less. Because all of a sudden you're saying, I had no idea I was spending that on those things. I had no idea that those lattes were adding up like that. I had no idea that I was spending this much here. And this is amazing exercise for, for couples especially because so many arguments are based on innuendos. Well, I think you're doing this, or I think you're... 
Now you've got the facts in front of you. And it's just 14 days, so it's not a life sentence. But you'll probably find out that you'll enjoy it so much and are so happy with the results of it that you'll probably want to continue it. Encourage you to do that 14-day challenge. So the old McDonald Law of Economics, EIAO, expected income, 53.98, expenses incurred, 53.98, and the outcome is zero. Now, before we jump on this person and say, my goodness, look at that, he's spending everything he's making. Well, if it didn't come to zero, if there was a surplus there, that would mean that there's more income that he's not tracking. And so I need to go back and find out, well, where is that income and what, what should I be doing with it? Is, is God asking me to save more? Is God asking me to give more? Because you want it to come to zero so that you're taking, keeping track of every income, every expense. But unfortunately, in too many situations, it's not a surplus that comes out when we do this exercise. It's a negative amount. And then what do you do? Well, that's when you have to set fire to your finances. Either find income or reduce expenses. Now, find income. You can turn that hobby into a, a, a revenue generator. You can start a blog online that, get, you know, do, do a side hustle or something like that. You can maybe take some on, on an extra job, find more income. But for the majority of people, it's going to be reducing expenses. Our financial troubles don't always come because we don't have enough income. It's more often than not because we have too much outflow. And we need to get a handle on that. So, principle number four then, managing our spending. There's several important players here. There's God, there's CRA, there's your family, there's your employer, creditors, neighbors. Let's quickly look at each one of these. We said God comes first. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. There, there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing you will not have enough room for it. This is still one of those sticky topics where people really get a little uptight and a little pinched. The whole area of tithing. But I... I like to render things down to their most simplest form. And so for me, tithing is simply Proverbs 3.9. Honor the Lord with the first fruits. That's all tithing is. It's honoring the Lord. It's recognizing that everything comes from God, everything belongs to God, and everything is to be used for God. So I take my hands off the first 10% and just give it unreservedly totally to God, because while I am grateful that he's part of my life, I'm grateful that he's given me all that I have. I'm grateful, and I honor him for his place in my life. So I give the first 10%. Now, that doesn't mean that the other 90% I can do with it whatever I want, because it all belongs to God anyway, too. But I'm just saying right off the bat, I'm yours, God, and here's a tangible way I can show it. I'll give you 10%. Had a dear saint come up to me though one time and say, I'm so glad you're talking about tithing. I have been faithfully giving 10% of my income to the Lord for 40 years. My outside voice says, well, bless you for your faithfulness. 
my inside voice says, oh, my dear, has your love for Jesus not grown to 11% or 12% over 40 years? Tithing's a great place to start. It's a terrible place to stop. The scripture calls us to generosity. And you know, it really doesn't take much to be generous. Scripture talks about a widow woman. Jesus and the disciples were sitting at the temple just outside where the treasury was taken. And they were watching what people were putting in the offering. Can you imagine that, Pastor? Watching what people put in the offering. That's another sermon. But Jesus was there with the disciples. And there were many pe wealthy people that came by that day. I can imagine that there was a person came with a bag of silver and put it in the treasury, quite proud of himself. But we have no comment about that. Another person may have come with a bag of gold and done the same, and, but we still have no comment about that. There may have been an individual who had so much money that he didn't put it in. He had servants carrying it, and they put it in for him. But we have no comment about that. But then this little widow woman comes along and puts in what's called the widow's mite. And the privilege going to Israel a few years ago and picked up one of these small copper coins. So what the woman would have put in, she had to put in two because that was the law. And all of a sudden, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Jesus gives us here a new definition of generosity. You'll notice in Scripture, if you do any study of Scripture, when it comes to money, it's never about how much. Generosity here is defined not in a matter of how much that was put in, but how much was left over. What's left after we give our gift? See, somebody could come into church today, and they could put in a check for $100,000. And after the counters pick themselves up off the floor and report it back to the pastor, everybody would say, wow, what a, what a gift. What a, what a generous gift. And, and maybe it is. But somebody else could have put in a check for $100. And it would get counted and put in with the rest of the offering and deposited. And there might be a thank you and go out at the end of the year for their, their annual giving. But who was the more generous? I mean, if that person gave $100,000 out of their million-dollar income and are left to survive on the remaining 900000 or that $100 was put in by a single mom who has to figure out how to feed her family on the $900 left out of the 1000 that she gets every month, who was the more generous? It's not about how much you give. It's about how much that's left. You see, remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each person should give what they've decided in their heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. It's interesting here. The opposite of cheerful giver is not a sad giver. 
The opposite of a cheerful giver is a grumpy giver. One who gives reluctantly or under compulsion. It's called giver's remorse. But God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, I don't know if you notice the word all, you will abound in every good work. God comes first. Our generosity. You read, I think it's in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 5 and 9. Our blessing that we receive is for his honor. God comes first. And then the tax man. Friend sits down at his desk to write a letter. Dear Revenue Canada, I'm writing to cancel my subscription. <laughs> Please remove my name from your mailing list. My son-in-law works in Surrey, British Columbia for CRA, so I share this with him. Well, there's good news. Uh, CRA encourages us to give. There's the tax department promises a refund of about 40% of whatever we give, and actually we're just being given back what's been deducted from our earnings or for, for pensions. Uh, tax laws allow us to receive credits for up to 75% of our taxable income, 100% on estates even. So there is good news. And then there's the other news. We're called to be responsible citizens. We're, we're called to pay taxes to make this place the great place that it is to live. And, and God provides for us to be able to participate in that. The only thing is I would encourage you to get good advice. There's a lot of people miss out on opportunities because they just don't get good advice when it comes to doing their taxes. So God comes first, then the taxman, then you and your family. Here's where I want to talk about saving. Uh, David Ramsey, the financial guru in the States, he suggests that if you want to get a handle on your finances, the first thing you need to do is set aside an emergency fund of about $1,000. And, and, and it's emergency. New, new pair of shoes is not an emergency. This is something that you, you set aside so that you don't have to use credit cards in these emergency situations. Some people suggest up to three months eventually. I can go in different ways on this one because, for example, it all depends on your situation. If you're a young single guy living in your parents' basement, you don't have a lot of obligations. You don't need a large reserve fund. But if you're a young couple with a new home and a new baby, uh, you've got a lot of responsibilities, and so your reserve fund is going to need to be a little larger than the next person. So it depends on your situation. But the idea is to save. So how do we do that? Well, there's something called the day's due technique, where at the end of the day, you just take all the coins in your pocket, put it in a jar. When the jar is full, put it into the savings account. It used to work because we used to pay with cash. Nowadays, not so much, so there's not a lot of coin at the end of the day in the pocket. The jar doesn't get full too fast. There's the plus 10 technique. That's where you take your, uh, all of your expenses, add them up, take 10% of that, make it another expense line called saving, and add it to your list of expenses. 
I prefer the minus 10 technique. This is where I take and I give 10% to God, and then I pay myself 10%. Just set it aside right off the top, and then adjust my spending accordingly on the remaining 80%. So that way you're not spending everything you make. You're honoring God, bringing that spiritual component into your life and into your finances, invoking God's math, which is incredible at times. Then you're paying yourself, setting aside savings, and that savings can take on many forms. It's retirement savings, it's emergency savings, it's a replacement savings. We know that things break down and they're going to need to be replaced, whether it be the tires in the car or the fridge in the kitchen. All of those things need place, so we save up for it so that when the time comes, we don't have to buy it on credit, we don't have to put it on a credit card, we can pay cash for it. You know, it's an amazing feeling when you can buy that car with cash. Saving up for the children's education. Your saving takes a variety of forms. But it comes down to living on what's left over. The foolish man devours all he has. So God comes first, taxman, you and your family, then your employer. I'm not going to say too much here other than employment is, income is probably the, your greatest source of income is your employer and greatest source of expense is your employer because of all of the deductions. And God calls us simply to be diligent as employees. Then your creditors. Anybody that has a loan or a mortgage knows how true this verse is. It's interesting, as, as director of the pension fund, I have opportunity to help churches with uh, capital campaigns and capital loans to finance their buildings. And they get all excited when they get a letter from me saying that they have been approved for their mortgage. And I'm often tempted to write back and say, yes, good for you to be excited, but also realize that for the next 21 years now you're my slave. For the borrower is servant, the word is slave, to the lender. Pastor was telling me about incredible miracles that you enjoyed in putting this building together and setting this place of ministry up in your community. You are to be commended to getting in here debt-free. God richly bless you for that. You've done well. I commend you. So how do we get out of debt? Well, it may seem like a duh, but stop borrowing. That's the first step to getting out of debt. No more new borrowing. Just quit. For some people, that may mean no more credit cards because it's an established fact that people spend more when they buy with a credit card than when they buy with cash. If I take cash out and get only coins back, that does something to me that is totally different than simply taking that piece of plastic and tap and go. I don't feel it. But when it comes out of my pocket as cash, it's a totally different story. So it may mean, and, 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 and we're talking here about getting out of debt. So this is a drastic situation. This calls for drastic means. People say, I can't live without a credit card. We're talking about getting out of debt here. How serious are you about it? Stop any form of borrowing. Secondly, develop a spending plan. When we're budgeting, tithes and taxes come off the top, and then there's various categories that we put a spending plan together. I, I, I know the word budget's up there, but I don't like the word budget. It, it freaks people out. It, it has negative connotations. 
I mean, how many know that your money's going to get spent? Why don't you plan where it's going to go? Why don't you decide how it gets spent? Put together a spending plan. Take control. Don't let it control you. So we put together a spending plan. Then we work out a payback plan. Our creditors get very nervous when they don't hear from us. Even if we're not able to spend or, or to pay back what we're supposed to pay back, at least let them know that you've got a plan and here's what you can give them. You will be surprised at how amenable they can be. Make sure that you request reductions in interest rates. Make sure that you let them know what you are going to be doing. Again, you'd be surprised at the favorable response that you'll get. I tell people, if you have debts, take and list them. Some people say, well, list the ones with the highest interest rates first and go down to the others. That's one way you can do it. I always like to list them the smallest debt to the largest debt. Because remember we said this whole money thing is kind of an emotional thing. I want that quick win. I want to pay off that smallest debt first, and it's going to tell me, hey, you're on track. You can do this. You've got one win already. Then when you pay off that smallest debt, take the payment you're making on that and roll that into the second debt. When you pay off that second debt, take the two payments that you were making and put them into the third debt. It's called the snowball effect. You'd be surprised at how quickly you can get yourself out of debt. And then there's lifestyle changes that you may have to make. Exercising self-discipline, learning that famous word, no, I will not buy it. Instead of going down to that sale where you can save 75%, you stay home and you save 100%. <laughs> Talking about lifestyle changes. Seek counsel, we've already talked about that. And learn to trust God. I am convinced that there are many times in our lives where God wanted to come alongside us, bless us, use someone to bless us and thus bless them, but we didn't have the time or the patience to wait on the Lord, and we pulled out the credit card and bought something because we just couldn't wait. Learn to trust God. Okay? Creditors, then your neighbors. This is where we talk about charity. A gentleman come to Jesus one time and said, who's my neighbor? Jesus tells them the story of the Good Samaritan, where there's the priest and the Levite passes by this person who's been waylaid by, by robbers. He's lying there in the ditch, but someone who's not even from his own country comes along, takes pity on him, bandages him up, takes care of him, puts him in an inn, and pays for it all himself. And Jesus says, who's the neighbor? Well, the person who had mercy on him. And Jesus says, you go do the same. We're called to be generous. Do you know it's possible to give away? And become richer. And it's possible to hold on too tightly and lose everything. The liberal man shall be brain rich, and by watering others, he waters himself. And probably one of my favorite verses. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. There is so much in this verse. First of all, everything we have can be divided into either seed or bread. Bread is that which nourishes us. That's God's provision to look after us, take care of us, 
give us food on the table, a roof over our head, and clothes on our back. That's God's provision. And whatever God has given you for those purposes, do not begrudge it or anything. Just be thankful for it. Do not be embarrassed about it. Do not be ashamed about it. It's God's gift to you. Give him praise. I think our challenge, though, is that we are very good at recognizing bread in our lives, but not so much seed. Seed is that portion of what God gives us that's to be given away. It's to be sown. I had the opportunity to share this message in Kinshasa, in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And I asked them, what do you do with seed? And they just laughed at me. They're an agricultural society. They, you plant it. You give it away. But it's interesting. In this verse, it says, he who supplies seed will also supply and increase your store of seed. It doesn't say that about the food part, but it does about the seed part, which suggests to me that any extra that we give is not to increase our style of living, but actually our style of giving. I am convinced that God would provide us as individuals and as churches with so much more if he was convinced that we knew what to do with that extra. I'm afraid we don't know what to do with abundance. We think it's for us. And it says it will be used to enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. At that same time in Kinshasa, I was speaking in French and the fellow was translating into Lingala and the translator came to me afterwards and said, while you were speaking there, the Lord showed me something. I said, what was it? He said, well, you, just, you don't just eat a seed. I said, well, what do you mean? Well, he says, in that seed are more trees and on those trees are more fruit and in those fruit are more seeds and in those seeds are more trees. He said, before you know it, you've eaten a whole forest. I said, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. When you take what God's given you as seed and you consume it on yourself, you don't just eat that seed and miss an opportunity to be generous. You actually miss a harvest of righteousness. A whole opportunity to see God multiply what you could have given. I must move on. Principle number five, planning for retirement. A couple standing on the corner begging. She says, what happened to our retirement plan? He said, here, this is it. We need to think ahead. You start with RSPs. CRE gives us a notice of assessment. We're based on 18% of the previous year's income. This year's maximum was just over 26000 and unused amounts can be carried into future years. And remember, when you make a contribution to your RSP, you get about 40% of that amount back as a tax credit. The idea with RSPs is that you buy them when your income is the highest, so you get the tax deduction, and then you cash them in and use them when your income is the lowest, and you don't have to pay that tax on them. It's a strategy both for putting it in and taking it out. Secondly, take advantage of compound interest. That simply means interest earning interest. Let me give you an example. An individual age 20 puts $1,000 a year away, gets average interest of 6%. By age 40, it's 42000 But by age 65, it's nearly a quarter of a million. Why? Because interest earning interest. It's one of the basic fundamental principles 
of saving and making plans for your own retirement. Invest your funds. The whole parable of the talents, where one received five, another received two, and the other received one. The one who received one just took and buried it. The other two multiplied it back and gave it back to the, the, to the master. And the one who buried it, I mean, if you look at the scripture, the, the, the words that are used to describe him are drastic. Called him wicked. All he did was put it away for safekeeping so he wouldn't lose it. He said, no, take what God has given you and multiply it out. It's to be used for God's kingdom. It's to bless others. It's not just for your own comfort. Invest it. We also have opportunities within the fellowship for uh, mortgage certificates where individuals can invest in mortgages. If you're interested in that, uh, talk to me later, and I'll direct you to the people at the international office that can help you with that. Uh, there's gift annuities that are available to people who are uh, past retirement age, probably age 72 or higher. That's where you can get a regular payment for the rest of your life and your spouse, and it's invested in mission and in the work of the Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada, the interest rate's based on your age, and, and whether or not it's taxable it is also based on your age. So you can talk to me about that later. Let's do the final touches. As we said, we'll be here for today, tomorrow, Tuesday, if we needed, uh, taking appointments and helping you out with some estate planning documents. While you are still alive, you may need what's called a substitute decision maker um, to make decisions concerning your property, managing your investments, and to make decisions concerning your personal care and carry out your wishes. They're called powers of attorney. So there's power of attorney for property, power of attorney for personal care. In a situation where you are incapacitated but still alive but unable to make the decision, you d name someone to act on your behalf and make decisions for you. A couple were sitting down on the couch one evening and having one of those rare moments of intimate conversation. And he says to her, just so you know, I never want to live in a vegetative state dependent on some machine. He says, if that ever happens, just unplug me, okay? And she, dutiful wife, says, okay. Now, that's not the vegetative state, nor the machine that he was talking about. But, but you get, get the message. So, so we can help you with those documents. Now, listen, you who say today, tomorrow we'll go to this or that city, we'll spend a year there, carry on business, make money. You don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What, what is our life? It's a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. But we need to be prepared. Do you know that half of Canadians don't have a will? They say, I don't have any money. What do I need a will for? Others worry, if I write a will, I'll die. <laughs> Cause and effect. It's a real fear for some people. I have sat down with people, and they said, I'm really nervous about doing this. And it's a real fear they have. Others they say, well, wills are for old folks. I've got lots of time. Well, you need a new will if you're over 18 years of age. If you're recently married or divorced, you need a new will. If there's a special family concerns, you want that outlined in a will document. If it doesn't reflect current thinking, you need to change it. 
If it doesn't provide for the Lord's work, you might want to give consideration to that. If you're a new parent, you need a will. See, there's a lot of advantages to having a will. Avoids family conflict in a very emotional situation. We've seen too many good Christians become neither good nor Christian when it comes to giving out the estate. Controls the way assets are distributed. Provides for those special circumstances. Secures the future of minor children, naming guardians and trustees. And it allows you to make provision for the Lord's work. And it may even save you some money. I'll show you in a minute. So, if you're coming to visit with me over the next couple of days, some questions you need to ask and prepare yourself. Who will be the executors? And you want to be careful how you say that word. The executor is the person who will carry out the wishes of the will. Make sure that things get done the way you've asked them for them to be done. Who will be the guardians of minor children? This can be a tough question. I have seen couples who have put off doing a will their whole life because they couldn't answer this question. You're first generation Christian. You have a way of raising your children. You have nobody else in your immediate family who would do it the way you do it. Who do you get? What ages should they receive their benefits? And we'll talk more about that in a moment. Do I want some of my assets to go to the work? How, how am I going to get it done? Do I do it myself? Do I get help? Do I get a lawyer? How do I get it done? Traditional will. I'll give you an example here. There's an estate of uh, $200,000. Normally there are, depending on how it's written up, there could be estate fees and there could be executor fees that come off. Usually they're about 10%. So then the surviving spouse gets 190. Those fees kick in again. There's a residue of 180. And it's split between two children, 90,000 each, more or less. Do you know how long it takes for a beneficiary to spend their inheritance? There's a lot of things to buy. But we do up what's called a charitable will. So you take the same example of the 200000 and you'll notice that there's no fees here. The way we write it up is, and this is especially true for couples, is the spouse becomes the executor. So there's no executor fees. And everything is transferred to the spouse upon the passing of the first spouse. So it's a very simple will, often not needing any other kinds of estate fees to be applied to the estate. And then when the second spouse passes away, there are a possibility of those fees, so we'd say 10% there. Now, the interesting thing in what this charitable will is we take and give an amount to charity. You see, why would you do that? Why would you include that in your will? Well, if you look at pages 26 to 28 in your booklet, there's a number of opportunities that are provided through the Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada for evangelism, for church planting, for training Christ, uh, Christian leaders, and for caring for widows, orphans, and feeding the hungry. So people will put into their will a percentage. In the, our example here, it's 10% of the estate. Leaves a residue of 170,000, each child getting 85. Now, if you look at pages, what, 29 and 30, I think, in your booklet, or, or 30, 31, it could be right at the end there, they do the comparison of these two wills. And you'll notice with the charitable will, there's 40% that comes back as a credit, a tax credit. Same as when you do your personal income taxes and you give a charitable gift, there's a tax credit that comes back to you each year. 
in the last year that you die, when they do their taxes, the credit come back to your estate. And so when you add that 8,000 tax refund into what the children are getting, they get about 89,000 each, which is not that far from the comparable of the traditional will on the previous page of 90,000 each. So there's very little difference going to those who inherit from your will, but at the same time, you've been able to do what you've always done in your life and honoring the Lord with your income and provide a charitable gift. So charitable will recognizes the blessing of God, expresses that personal philosophy of generosity, storing up treasures in heaven rather than on earth. It demonstrates value to the family members left behind and gives you self-satisfaction as you live out the days of your life. And then Revenue Canada gives you that tax credit. And God says, well done. So as I said, we're here today to help you if we can with these. Uh, we'll ha I'm assuming we're doing the appointments here at the church, okay? And we'll begin this afternoon, try and get four or five in this afternoon, and then all day Monday, all day Tuesday if needed. We've provided a few evening appointments. We've provided day appointments today for those who work during the day and so that you can get there. There is no cost to these appointments for you. My salary's looked after. The church is gracious and generous enough to help us with some of our expenses. And so we can provide these opportunities to you. No charge. That doesn't mean they're of no value. They're probably for your couple to go and get wills and power of attorney documents done. You're looking at about $1,000, somewhere around there. So this is a great value for you. It's a great opportunity for you to live out biblical financial principles in your life and be good stewards of all that God has entrusted to you. Pastor called me an expert here. I always get nervous when I hear that word because X is an unknown quantity. Spurt is a drip under pressure. So I'm not an expert. I'm not a financial guru. I'm not an accountant. I'm not even a lawyer or a legal specialist. But we do bring to you biblical principles. Our documents have been prepared for us by lawyers, and we know they are excellent and will serve you well. And we take the extracted measure, particularly with your will document, of taking to a lawyer and getting an affidavit signed and stamped for you, and it comes back to you afterwards. So we do provide you with good service. So if it's, if it's something you'd want to avail yourself of, I encourage you to do so. But before I turn things back to the pastor, let me pray with you. Maybe there's something I've said today that has touched your heart and said, I've never thought of it that way before. Maybe it was the whole seed and bread thing. Maybe... Maybe we've been consuming seed, thinking it was bread for us. We need to humble ourselves before God and ask forgiveness. And pray that he gives us courage in the future to sow seed generously for his honor, for his glory. Maybe you need the touch of the hand of God on your finances. Maybe you need to find a way to get out under the burden of debt and that slavery. I want to pray for your deliverance today. I want you to know the joy and the freedom that comes in living under the principles of God with our finances. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are a generous God. Thank you that you give us all good things. You do not hold, withhold from your children. You bless us every day. We thank you for the gift of salvation. Who can describe this gift that is given to us? We thank you for meeting our daily needs. 
giving us this day our daily bread. We pray, dear Lord, your protection. Deliver us from the evil one. Lord, I pray for those who are struggling in their finances right now. I pray blessing on their lives. I pray, dear Lord, that you would bring deliverance from this burden. Speak to their hearts. Speak to their souls. Help them see where they can change, where they can begin to honor you. It's in the area of tithing or generosity or whatever. But, Lord, let them be delivered from the burden of this financial situation. And if, Lord, we in the past have taken what you've given and sent to us as seed and we've consumed it on ourselves, we ask your forgiveness. We repent of that now. We turn from that and ask that in the future you give us other opportunities to sow seed. And when that time comes, that you give us the discernment to recognize it as seed and to take and to sow it courageously. Blessing you, honoring your name, living out your kingdom in our lives. So, Lord, I pray for these people gathered here this morning. Bless them abundantly in all ways. And let them be a blessing. And I pray for this church. I thank you for the way it reaches out to its community. Already you are, are showing it how to be a seed in this, and sow seed into this community so that it can be blessed. They can be your hands and feet and show the mercy and the grace and the compassion of Jesus in, in this community. And I pray that you will give them opportunity, that you will bless them with even more seed as they demonstrate they know what to do with it. So, Lord, for each person here and for this church as a whole, bless them abundantly. Let each one be known as a generous Christian. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.